0: I'm Jesse Lubinsky. I'm Donnie Piercy. Hi, I'm Jeffrey Heil, hosts of the Partial Credit Podcast, a part of the Education Podcast Network. Just like the show you're listening to now. Shows on the network are individually owned and opinions expressed may not reflect others. Find other interesting education podcasts at edupodcastnetwork.com. Hey, welcome back. Steve here. And today I'm talking with one of my educational heroes, John Hattie. Join us as we talk about visible learning, the impact of what we do, 10 Mind Frames for Leaders, the Visible Learning Approach to School Success, and the Distance Learning Playbook Series. Lots to learn today. You're going to love this episode. Thanks for listening. Don't forget to share and subscribe. Enjoy. Professor John Hattie is a researcher in education. His research interests include performance indicators, models of measurement, and evaluation of teaching and learning. John Hattie became known to a wider public with his two books, Visible Learning and Visible Learning for Teachers. Visible Learning is a synthesis of more than 800 meta-studies covering more than 250 million students. According to John, Visible Learning is the result of 15 years of research about what works best for learning at schools. TES once called him possibly the world's most influential education academic. John Hattie is Laureate Professor of Education at the University of Melbourne, Australia, since March 2011. Before, he was Project Director of ASTEL and Professor of Education at the University of Auckland, New Zealand. He holds a PhD from the University of Toronto, Canada, and you can find a full CV of Professor John Hattie PDF at the website of the University of Auckland. John Hattie's research got a lot of attention from the media linked to the publication of his visible learning meta study. <laughs> the problem was that many individual aspects of his research were taken and used as a kind of checklist that could magically improve schools. It won't work like that. John, John's uh, TED talk, why are so many of our teachers and schools so successful can be a good starting point to putting it all in context. John, thanks for joining me today and say hi to everyone.
1: Hi everyone. It's great to be with you, Steve.
0: Well, thank you so much, John. And uh, I, I almost laughed when I, I read that last part of your bio, because yes, people like to take things and say, yes, this is the magic silver bullet. This is what it does. And uh, I, uh, I I agree with that uh, you know, about that video, that that's an awesome thing to watch if people want to understand it a little bit more, but uh, do it kind of drive you nuts a little bit when people just say, which one, which one is the magic bullet here? Which one? Come on, Timmy. It's gotta be one of these.
1: <laughs> yeah, it does. And um, you know, of course I have to take some responsibility for how I wrote that visible learning book. Uh, I tried not to come across that notion of the silver bullet. And it was only as a last minute decision, I included the appendices with all the um, the uh, different influences and in their effect sizes listed in order. And, and maybe that wasn't such a good idea. Like it got attention. But um, people have, you know, look at the stuff at the top. Yeah, we do that. We don't do the stuff at the bottom. And that was never my message.
0: Well, it's, uh, uh, and I totally understand that. It's just, it you know, People gonna do what they do, I guess. <laughs> it's the best way to do it. And just drive on and say, no, here's how you use it, which you which you do, which is awesome. So, you know, John, like I said, it's it, you know, it's truly an honor to have you on my show. And I've been reading and using your research for many years now. Uh before we get into the topic for today, I was wondering if you could start by telling everyone what led you to being focused on educational research? I mean, did you suddenly say one day, this is my thing? Or or what? What what made you say, hey, this is it? Well, it almost was one of those one-day moments. Like my background
1: is, I'm a statistician, I'm a, a psychometrician, and that's what PhDs in psychometrics. And my whole career up until 10 years ago was in psychometrics. I've been the president of the International Test Commission. I walk on that, I work in, walk in those circles. But it was, as a reasonably young academic, I, I joined a university faculty and was amazed that everybody I met met had that of bullet. They knew what really worked. And they had evidence that what they were talking about worked. And I remember when I first went to my first job in the University of New England in Australia, everybody took me aside and they closed the door, which was probably an interesting sign. And they told me that, look, you're in measurement. We kind of like you, but you have to study something really important. Study this. And the first person said it's all about communication and relationships. The next said the future is technology. And they're all so passionate. But it was that sense when I went home that night thinking, How can they all be right? And so that's got me started. And then back in the days when I started, um, Gene Glass invented this thing called meta-analysis. And as a good measurement person, the best way to learn what one is is to do one. So I did some and got to do a few and started following that literature. And it was sitting in um, University of Washington where I was at the time in Seattle, this day thinking, what if I collected all the meta-analyses? and did a meta-analyses of meta-analyses to try and change the debate from what works to what works best. Because everybody stood up in front of teacher education students, professional learning and says, this works, this is how I did it, here's the evidence. But they never did comparative work. So that was where it started. And as you can see, it took me as a hobby for about 20 years collecting all that data. And quite frankly, Steve, that was the easy part. <laughs> Making sense out of it, whoa. And I set myself the task, could I discover the underlying features of what happens in those classes and schools that are above the average compared to those below the average? And that's where it all started. So it took me about 20 years to work out that story. And every time I came back and said, if it doesn't discriminate, the story is not right. And I went through so many different stories, so many different arguments uh, to get to the final set of um, claims that I make in the visible learning book.
0: That's awesome. That's, what an incredible task to take on. But I could, you know, it's just, it had to be a neat challenge for you to say, I got to get to the bottom of this. I mean, it's like,
1: you have to have a hobby, Steve.
0: <laughs> that's, a, that's a heck of a hobby. I like that, John. <laughs> so, since so, 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 so we've gotten there, let's shift to visible learning. Could you give us a brief overview of what visible learning is?
1: Yeah, it, it took me some time to work out that title. You can imagine I went through so many different titles to how I can encapsulate the big idea. And the irony is that, you know, my critics say, but learning's not visible. And my argument is, that's why it's called that. I want to make the learning of students, of teachers and school le- leaders more visible. Because so much happens up there in the head and in the brain in terms of, and in the emotions as we go about learning. But so often we talk about the more extraneous things and don't actually get inside the kid's head. Like, I want to get inside the kids' head and the teachers' head to understand what strategies they're using, how they're going about their thinking processes. Of course, that's not easy. Of course, that's one of the hardest things to do. But you know, as the academic, it's our job to take on tough arguments, even if we don't always solve them. And so I call it this notion of visible learning. And like, I, I start with when teachers work together, think aloud about how they go about evaluating their impact. In fact, we are just about to release a book. Um, about the, this nature of, of this way of thinking, which we call evaluative thinking. How they make the judgments, moment by moment, as they walk around the class, as they look at evidence, and how they do that together because, surprise, surprise, Steve, teachers are humans. And we humans have incredible cognitive biases when we look at things. Like we know that in a classroom, teachers see and hear about 20% of what happens. So how do you get them to see that other 80%? So that working together, Looking at their high expectations, teachers who have a high expectation about what a year's growth looks like compared to one down the corridor that has a very small notion of what a year's growth looks like, both of them will be successful because of their expectations, sadly in one case and beautifully in the other. And then how do you make that explicit to the students, which is why we're so obsessed about success criteria is one of the ways of doing that. And one of the things I wanna bring back into this business after to the age of about seven or eight, most kids will do what you tell them to do. After that, they wanna be challenged. And sadly, in a lot of classrooms, kids are asked to do things. And in a lot of doing, there's not a lot of challenge. And if, if you don't challenge them, they'll challenge you. And so this is why we have this Goldilocks Principle of Challenge. You know, how do you set the success criteria so it's not too hard, so they give up and say, what's the point? Not too easy. And unfortunately, that's the biggest problem. The work's too easy or it's just doing and not too boring. And then the the other part of all this is that if you take this as the premise of what we're talking about, it works on the assumption that kids go to school to learn that which they don't know. But if you go into most classes and you see what happens in those classes, everything is privileged for the kids who do know. Like, I'd love to come into your class, Steve, and ask your kids, what do you do when you don't know in this class? And if your kids are like virtually every other kid in the world, they say the same thing. I put my hand up, watch them. No, they don't. The only kids who put their hand up, are the kids who know the answer or think they know the answer. The whole classroom's geared to getting it right. That's the antithesis of what learning's about. If you're getting it right all the time, the work's too easy. So how do you make errors? How do you make trust? like I I say, as we do in our work, have you ever walked into a class and heard kids think aloud? Have you ever walked into a staff room and hear teachers thinking aloud? Because that's what has to happen. And then it's all about then how you as a teacher or a school leader seek feedback about your impact so you can get better. And this relentless focus on learning. Um, How do we switch the whole debate in our schools from teaching to learning? So that's the big messages in the visible learning that I'm trying to get across. And you'll notice what I haven't said. I haven't talked about curriculum. I haven't talked about how you teach. I haven't talked about kids. And that's the big advance that I'm trying to make. Switching from what works to what works best and understanding, appreciating that expertise that's so around us. I'm in your country, Steve, and on the basis of NAEP, the No Child Left Behind, and all the data I can find, PISA, I can say with some confidence that 60% plus of teachers in schools are already in that zone where they're having that desired effect that we're talking about. So why is it as a system that we constantly look for failure and try and fix it? And we won't. Look for success and upscaler. And frankly, the biggest problem are teachers. They deny their expertise. And that's sad because there's so much of it there. And that's what's the essence of our profession. And that's what keeps me going. I love it. When I travel the world and I see so much excellence, that's the visible learning message. scale up success.
0: I love it. I love it. And I love your passion about this because it so comes through. And, it, and you're so right about, I mean, that's so, t- so many times wanting to deny that they actually understand what, uh, you know, when the kids are understanding, when the kids are getting, when the kids are knowing. And
1: think of what's happened in this COVID example. Like here in, in Melbourne, we've been out for three months. Um, we've been out since March, actually, then out back again. And teachers have dramatically changed how they've taught in many ways over that last eight months. You tell me across the world, a single educational policy decision that's helped educators work through this COVID except for do you open schools or not? This is the biggest educator led revolution we've ever seen. And it's really working. And I think this is quite stunning. Their expertise is dramatic. And I think many parents have realized what incredible expertise has. They've had difficulties with their one or two precious ones. Teachers have 30, 20 to 30 of these every day, 200 days a year we have an incredible amount of expertise in that profession.
0: You are so right. And I, and I love the, what you, what you focused on there. Cause that's, uh, you know, it, it's, you know, basically we've had to get kids back in to school and the teachers are like, you gotta, you gotta believe in us a little bit somewhere cause we, we can make this work and, uh, and it's working. So, and that's, and that's wild what you're describing there with the hard lockdown that you guys went through. Ours was kind of like a pseudo sort of, uh, kind of sort of lockdown and, uh, um, more strict in the beginning than, uh, than it became a little bit later, but uh, uh, pretty wild. And uh, so, but you're so right. It is a, it's a drive to say, um, we we can make this happen. We can make this work. So good, good stuff. Thank you. John, I got to say this in several of your books, there typically is a chapter introduction or comment like this, how we think about the impact of what we do is more important than focusing on what we do. Could you take some time to explain why this is important to understand and know?
1: Yeah, look, I I, I say it every time and it's partly because of my critics and, you know, as an academic, we survive on criticism. So I'm very appreciative that many people have taken the time to criticize my work. And I wrote a um, a blog recently taking virtually every criticism I could ever find of Visible Learning. And interestingly, 75 plus percent of them are about the league table. They haven't read the book. They just looked at the league table and they say all oh, these influences overlap. You can't talk about them separate. No one does it but oh my gosh, I say that on almost every page of the book. So that's part of the, re- and the other thing, Steve, is people looked at that league table and said, we're going to do the stuff at the top, not at the bottom. So that's why I shifted and tried to emphasize this notion of know they impact. Like as a researcher, I talk in terms of probabilities. If you do these kinds of influences, interventions, you have a higher or a lower probability of having an impact. But what really matters is how you implement it in your classroom, those evaluative decisions you make about adaptation, quality, fidelity, as you're implementing. And so yes, I want you to look at high probability interventions, but it all comes back to you being an evaluator of your impact. Impact about what, impact for whom, and impact about how much. And this is really what I'm trying to press, and this is the work we do, At about 10,000 schools across the world each year is help the school leaders and the teachers become evaluators of their impact. Um, See it through the eyes of kids. See it through the eyes of the artifacts of kids' work. Through the test scores, but it's always about how they go about interpreting it. And so this is really what the emphasis is here about why it's so important and why I have to keep repeating. It's about knowing your impact and begging the question about what you mean by impact about what, for whom. Uh, and, and this is the key message we try and get across. And uh, it's really an interesting experience sometime, particularly in a high school to shadow a kid for a day. And you go into the first classroom and the teacher says, in the school, we do this, blah, blah, blah. Next class. In the school, we do this, completely different. It's impervious to the kids. They're so used to teachers talking. They listen to what teachers ask them to do, what they value and what kind of feedback they get. And sometimes that's quite a different message. And I want teachers and school leaders to hear what it sounds like through the kids' eyes, kids' view, as well as their own. And that's why I keep talking about knowing your impact, seeing your learning through the eyes of kids.
0: I love it because that is so powerful. I mean, just just that concept is so often, I mean, it's it's totally not even thought about because it's like, you know, it's – you know, a lot of times you're just talking about stuff and doing this and doing that and, and never once really getting into the idea of that impact. So I love that.
1: We, we did a study recently where we've asked uh, quite a few, uh, five or 600 teachers about what their concept of engagement was. How do you know kids are engaged? And it was very frustrating because the majority view was that kids are engaged when they're doing, they're doing the work, they're invested in the work, they like the work. And then a lot of doing, there's not much learning. And it's, it's, it's sad when you think that students are told that being successful is doing the work, making it long, neat, and handed in. Now, learning's a struggle. Um, failure is a learner's best friend. You don't come to school to learn that which you know. So that whole notion of struggle, etc. cetera. Now, by age eight, most kids are taught that in this class, you're doing well if you're a high achiever, if you're getting the work done. Well, we're excluding so many kids so quickly. It's not about that. It's about enjoying the struggle of learning. And I want struggle to be the happiest word in the classroom and getting away from what they do. Same with kids, same with teachers, same with school leaders. And wouldn't it be nice if it was the same with your superintendents and your politicians?
0: So let's shift gears here just a little bit. Let's focus on a couple of recent books, John, and and resources that you've been a part of developing. One of the most recent books is called 10 Mind Frames for Leaders, The Visible Learning Approach to School Success. And it came out this year, 2020. It's edited by you and Raymond Smith. Uh, Why should a school leader want to read this book? And could you also explain the term mind frame?
1: Yeah, Um, my it comes back to what's a phrase we could use to get at the way they think. Now, you know, Carol Dweck's used mindsets and we didn't want to use that because that's associated with her work. And you know, I very much like talking and working with her and um, we didn't want to confuse it with that. And I also said to Carol that you've got one mindset, growth versus fixed. Um, people don't like it. They dismiss all your work. Uh, Carol, I'm going to be smarter than that. I'm going to have 10. And if they don't want one, they can go to the others. Actually, I've only got one, that is no they impact. We did it across the 10. And the notion of mind frames was that way of thinking, It's how we think and feel about something. And so that was the phrase we've used, and you know, as you commented, we've, we've called our books that, we've got one out for teachers, we've got one out for school leaders. Um, we're just finishing, my son and I is actually finishing one at the moment on mindframes for parents. Um, and then one of the major ways of thinking to try and sort of come back to what we're talking about earlier, orientate around that ways of thinking notion. So we spent, um, Ray and I spent many many weeks, many months actually, trying to work out a format. Because I've learned over the years that you don't ask um, colleagues to write something and then get it because then you have this 10 completely different styles, formats, whatever. So we worked out on this format and we wanted to hit every base. We wanted to hit the research base, we wanted to hit the ways of thinking, we wanted examples. One of the rules we have in our in our work is that we don't like the notion of tips and tricks, tools, toolboxes, etc. Um, because so much professional learning is based on the notion, can you do this tomorrow? It's not about that, it's about thinking, which is a longer term investment. And so you can I could give you 10 tips tomorrow, Steve, but if I don't attend to how you think, it's not going to make the difference. And the other part of that is that, and I'm sure you know this, every teacher you ever met has an incredibly strong theory about how they teach. If you don't acknowledge that, tips and tricks is gonna add nothing. And so we wanna get at that. So that's why we come up with various ways to try and come up with the formatting. Um, As the researcher in me, I'm not prepared to give up. It's gotta have the research in it. Otherwise, it's just another how-to book and that is okay, but it misses the point. And now Ray, who's worked in leadership for, for so long with an incredible amount of work in schools and being a, a, a school leader and superintendent himself, you know, he had the stories and the ways to get to it. So it was a fun book doing it. And then we came up with a format and we decided, unlike some of our other works, that we'd ask the 10 gurus in the world. And one of the luxuries that I now have is, I know a lot of people out there. And so I went to these 10 people, you know, and some of them are my critics. I went to them and said, Are you prepared to contribute to doing this format? And you know, every single one said yes. And so it was a massive pleasure um, working with them to come across those messages. I wish all books were that fun.
0: That's awesome because I, I can only imagine it, it, it's got to be tough making a book with two people. <laughs> But but synthesizing what uh, what an assortment of ten come up with would be uh, I would think that would be a challenge in itself. But it's it's really cool too, and I want to make sure I say this because the you know the the formatting the the way it is for each chapter you have the mind frame, a story, an explanation of what the chapter is about, an explanation of the visible learning factors involved, and then a section on getting started. And it's so easy to follow and easy to to understand. I just kudos because this is this is excellent, and especially for you know, as a focus with leaders, you know, that, you know, they kind of shy away from things that would be difficult to uh, even get started in. So I think you've really hit the money on this.
1: I, I edited a book many years ago and I learned that when you edit a book, every author uh, prides himself on being last. So that's why we did the one I did with Eric Anderman on um, student achievement. We had 150 uh, editors and they all came in on time. So it was really quite amazing. Um, The other interesting thing is that over the the last um, decade, I've been involved in the political situation here in Australia. I have a political appointment as well as an academic. And as part of our HR work, uh, they had lots and lots of videos of great teaching. And I'm not a great fan of that because it's how you think about the teaching and how you think when you watch it. And so what we've done is we've added two buttons to those videos. One, if you press it, you can hear the teacher thinking or the school leader thinking as they're doing the work. And the other, you hear the kid working. And so this is the kind of flavor we tried to get across in the book. How can we hear these leaders thinking as we're talking about what they're thinking?
0: Well, that's awesome. Cause that, and it really comes across that way. Cause that's what's, uh, so it's neat about it. Cause it's a, it's a great collection of unique individuals and their, their thoughts. And, uh, and, uh, and by following that format, I, I love it. So it's good stuff. Kudos on that. Cause I think it came out just like you were looking for it to. Yeah, you know, one of my favorite sections in the book is Dylan Willems um, in chapter two. He says, it's, I see assessment as informing my impact and next steps. In, in this chapter, Dylan says, teachers and school leaders will make better decisions if they have better evidence of what is happening in their students' and teachers' heads. W- what is the big takeaway from understanding the role that assessment plays in student understanding?
1: Yeah, Dylan, now it as we commenting earlier, assessments, my background, and I get so frustrated to see discussion about assessments stop at the scores. Like the numbers are supposed to be indicators. Like if, if we had a history in measurement of talking about score reporting as opposed to scores, we might be in a better shape. And uh, th- what Dylan is getting to there is it's about that interpretation that teachers and school leaders are making about the scores. And this is why we're so passionate about bringing those interpretations alive in the staff rooms when we have professional learning committees and not stopping at the test scores. And like we wrote a book a few years ago about student assessment capabilities. Surely we should be responsible for teaching the kids how to interpret the results from their assessments and moving beyond the numbers and moving to where to next. And so this is where I, um, certainly Dylan talking about assessment being feedback to the teacher about their impact and their next steps is so, so powerful. Here's here's my challenge to um, your teachers out there. The next time they give a test to a kid, at the end, after they've marked it, they've handed it back, I want them to stop and answer this question. What did they learn about the impact they had? About what? With which kids? And how much? And if they can't answer that question, I think they've just wasted the kid's time. Now, the beauty of asking that question the next time you create an assessment, you create an assessment to answer those three questions: How successful was I in terms of the impact about what, with whom, and how much? Oh my gosh! Everything then improves dramatically for the
0: students. Awesome! I, I love that. The uh, you know, uh, um, and I, I got to say this because I was going to move move on, but I got to I got to say that that's I think that's so often you know, the conversation just stops right there. You know, it's whatever happens, happens. And now we move on.
1: <laughs> and you know, your country's done it. My country doesn't. We have whole mandates about tests, tests, tests. And I want to turn it on its head as I'm trying to do in this country and say, if we're not learning from it as a system, as a superintendent, as a principal, as a teacher, then let's stop doing it. And I'm a fan of tests, I'm a psychometrician, but I'm a fan of the interpretation they give. And so I think that's where we've gone down the wrong way and looking at tests of being about scores and looking at about accountability. No, it's about giving you information about where you go next.
0: That's excellent, I love it. Because <laughs> um, it is, it's, it should be helping you understand what, what, uh, what the kids don't understand or do understand and then helping you decide then which path you take now. <laughs>
1: The way I, that's what Dylan gets at, and that's the way we want you to think about assessment in your classrooms and your system.
0: Love it. Uh, chapter six is another of my favorites. It's about the role of feedback, written by Peter M. DeWitt. It, it's titled, I give and help students, teachers understand feedback, and I interpret and act on feedback given to me. Could you talk a little bit about why school leaders need to read and understand what this chapter is about?
1: Steve, I was um, part of the problem many years ago. I've spent so many years of my life looking at this notion of feedback like it's very powerful but it's extremely variable like a third of feedback's negative i give you feedback now it works i give the same feedback to you later it doesn't work and understanding that variability of what matters and my light came on one day in the early days when i was asked to go into a school and watch this teacher she's like I give so much feedback and you know i was still there thinking well actually and she did and teachers give an incredible amount of feedback. So the line was me is, for me, was switching the debate from looking at the feedback teachers and school leaders give, to looking at the feedback that teachers and school leaders receive. And the line we use is, was the feedback heard, understood, and actionable? And like, look, think of a lot of school leaders doing performance evaluation with their teachers. They talk to them, they tell them, they put the evidence on the table, they help, blah, blah, blah. But What was received and understood in action by that teacher? And when you understand that, you improve your performance evaluation so often. And and with teachers, it's such a mark of respect. When I say, Steve, what did you understand by what what I was talking about there? And so I can hear whether you understood what I was saying and whether I've got it right in the feedback I give you in terms of how you interpret it. And so this is what Peter's talking about there is that We've got to stop thinking of feedback as something given, something received. Most kids by age eight, realize they're not going to get a lot of feedback about where they go next. So they turn off. And kind of like me they are very, very good at selective listening. (laughs) But we know that when they give feedback to the whole class, it's not about me. And so we've got to stop sometimes and listen to how our kids and how our teachers are interpreting, receiving that feedback. With kids, next time you spend all Sunday writing all your comments, give it back to them. Wait a day so it's not short-term memory. Then ask them to write some notes about what they understood by your feedback. It's a very sobering exercise. Most of them don't remember, even though you spent and wrote two pages. Some of them get it wrong. That's what we want to do, and that's what we're saying to leaders, spend more time listening to how your teachers are interpreting your feedback. You hear what their mind frames, hear how they're thinking about the world. And obviously, then you're going to increase the power of your feedback.
0: Excellent. That's, that's excellent because that's uh, it, it's you know difficult to do because I think a lot of people just want to give they just want to give feedback you can and, get out. You're right. Let's let's move on <laughs> next. <laughs> so
1: it's, it's it's really quite amazing. It's um we, we like I sit in staff rooms and hear school leaders you know, talking with their staff, and it requires an incredible amount of trust. Um, And in the early days, I used to say, it took us sometimes six to nine months to build the trust in the staff room to do this. And Vivian Robinson actually confronted me one one day over dinner and she said, oh my gosh, you mean to say you waste nine months of a kid's life while you build trust? Ooh, that hurt. And so I learned that, obviously I went back to it. I said, well, what do I do Vivian? And she said, trust is who you are. Trust is what you do now. Trust is your skill in listening. Trust is the way you respect who you're talking to. And you can see that in a person reasonably quickly. And so part of that trust is also when I talk to you or you're talking to me, am I listening to you? Am I actually communicating to you that I'm listening to you? Are we having a dialogue or is it just me waiting for you to shut up so I can tell you what to do next? That's so transparent.
0: Very much so. Very much so. It's. Uh... Oh, oh my gosh! And that's uh, and I think too many times. That's a lot of what it what it is. Is that yeah, 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 yeah. If they were to say out loud, yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, good. You stopping? Okay, now here's what I want you to hear. Goodbye.
1: Let's <laughs> not get this wrong, Steve. I'm, I'm a bit horrified at this moment what I'm saying. I don't want to imply that this is a novel na- notion. I see this so often in professional learning communities amongst teachers, amongst school leaders. I want to increase. That. I want to make that legitimate. I want to make that normal. I want to make staff rooms safe places for teachers to bring along problems. I never ever want to hear the word "I" in a staff room. They're our kids and they're our problems, and we work on this together. And that's really the start of building that trust. And you know, then talking about how we get better feedback and interpret that feedback and use it. Excellent. Good stuff
0: excellent. out there. excellent. The uh, it- John, in the conclusion of 10 Mind Frames for Leaders, this is noted a just cause is a specific vision about the future that does not yet exist, a future state so appealing that people are willing to make sacrifices in order to help advance toward that vision. Could you talk about this? Yeah, look, it's, when I get a lot of criticisms of my work, it's usually to do
1: with my so called obsession about achievement and they think I'm obsessed about test scores and yeah I kind of am obsessed about those but in ways I hope that we've talked about here Steve um, that has a positive impact on kids and on teachers and so um, one of my biggest critics actually was a Danish philosopher a sociologist and for some reason Denmark took up visible learning in a big way and the minister liked it and implemented it across the country and it created quite a lot of um, criticism so He emailed me one day and said, I want to come out to Australia and talk to you about all your work. And I thought, really? And then I thought, wait a moment. I say I love critique. I say I do this. So I said, yes, come on out. And we did. And we actually ended up writing a book about the purposes of education, which comes to this phrase about the just cause. And the whole notion that Steen um, uh, lesson Napa was getting to me was, uh, how do you get to what this just causes about schooling. Is it just about achievement? And our answer in the book is clearly no. Uh, on the other hand, it's a yes. Yeah, we wouldn't have schools if we didn't have achievement. But to get achievement, you have to worry about other attributes of the kid. You have to worry about respect for self and respect for others. You have to worry about the equity issues. You have to worry about all those things. And so what we, and I was then struck with Simon Sinek's work where we should start with the why question. And right at the moment, uh, the privilege of my life, Steve, is I'm a granddad. And uh, my oldest granddaughter is four. And the others are are two and three. And you know what they ask every day. Why, 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 why? (laughs) But as a granddad, by age eight, they're going to switch to what? And they're going to lose that curiosity. They're going to lose that sense of wonder. And I wanted to bring that back. So Ray and I talked about it and "Well, how do we make sure this is not just a book saying we've got to get people to think aloud? There is a moral imperative underneath this, the why. Um, and successful leaders, as you know, Simon Sinek says, talks about their why and proves it with what they do. And so once again, we thought that was a really nice way to get away from do, 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 and are we doing the right things? Are you teaching the right way? And say, what is the why in the school? And it is about turning every kid onto learning. Um, you know, 95% of five-year-olds want to come to school to learn. The Jenkins curve shows that by the end of elementary school, it's about four out of 10. That's a pretty important problem. That's a pretty important why. You're not going to get achievement increases if you've got six out of 10 kids not wanting to be there to learn the stuff we teach them. And so that's why we wanted to end it up with that notion. And if you ever hear me talking, I often want to end up with a a statement that there is a moral imperative here. Uh, This is not a value free business that we're in. And we need to confront that, our job, and the reason every one of us came into this profession was to have an impact on kids. And I think we have to be a little bit more clear about what we mean by impact.
0: That in itself is so powerful because I, I think we do lose our way. it uh, We forget about that meaning that we wanted to have and so forth. And I think that is so, in, so important what you're saying there is, is revisiting that and making sure we do.
1: And, and, and many teachers actually do have this moral imperative, but it's not always a shared one. Um, and that's what I want to share. And, and you get so much um, impetus and motivation when you find like-minded people who want to have that impact and really care. Like, my little joke, in um, Invisible Learning, was that the common denominator in this whole business is passion, but you can't measure it. Now, the joke was you can't measure it. Of course you can measure it. You can see it. You can feel it. You know, when you're walking, you know, Steve, when you walk into a school, what that sense of passion is from that school leader to have an impact on the lives of kids, or is it just to shuffle the papers and get through stuff. And my experience is most school leaders, most, have that real passion that they really wanna make a difference to kids' lives through working with their teachers. That's what I wanna capture, that's what I wanna reinforce, and that's what I wanna privilege.
0: Excellent, excellent. Let's shift to uh, two other recent works. Um, there's the Distance Learning Playbook for School Leaders and the Distance Learning Playbook K-12, Teaching for Engagement and Impact in Any Setting. And I know there's a couple others in the works, like a parent one and so forth. And uh, what was the main drive behind creating these these books?
1: Well, I, I've been um, commissioned core in the publishing company that's based in the U.S. to I oversee my work worldwide because yeah, I'm the researcher who sits in the back room, so they run all that. And, of course, they went through COVID difficulties. Um, and they, we were talking and they were saying, you know, what, what can we do right now? Because, you know, schools are so focused on what they're doing in COVID teaching. They're not going to engage in a lot of professional learning right now unless it's in their school, and there's been a lot of it within schools. Um, and so we said, well, you know, why don't we take the work we've been doing and look at the research on distance learning 22 different meta-analyses, 7 million kids, the effect size of 0.14. Now what that means is that if you compare distance to in class, the difference doesn't matter much. Quality teaching, quality teaching, regardless of form. But that 0.14 was fascinating. What is it that makes distance actually a little better than in class? And then it was this notion of that, you know, my struggle has been looking at the current grammar of schooling. like we did a study um, in England and the UK about four years ago, 17,000 teachers. Um, what percentage of time in a classroom do teachers talk, Steve?
0: Um, 70%?
1: 89. Oh, wow. 79. They ask 200 questions a day. 90% are about the facts. That's the current grammar of schooling. And the conspiracy is that kids above average want teachers to talk more. They want more facts because they know how to play that game and they're good at it. Is that really what we want? And so we saw this COVID opportunity as a golden ticket to reinvent schooling from that old grammar to what we're talking about in the visible learning work. And I'm calling it the new syntax of learning. And you know, I, I said to the team, look, I'm not a fan in calling the books Distance Learning because you know, here in Australia, COVID happened at the start of our school year. Distance, we've, we've passed that. You we know, went to hybrid teaching, you name it. And so I won this battle by having the subtitle, you know, teaching for engagement and impact in any setting. But in your country, you went through it at the end of the year, then you had your school holidays. And if I could be polite in saying this, then you had a crazy politic about schools opening, not opening, turning COVID into a political drama. And that really created a lot of anxiety, fear, and whatever. And so we were lucky. We published the books into an empty market and trying to say, you know, there are good ways you can do things. Of course, there are negatives. Of course, there are equity problems. Of course, there are problems with unemployment and illness and death. But there's an opportunity here. Let's capture it. The saddest thing from COVID will be, we'll end this and we'll learn nothing. And so we really wanted to say, here's a chance. And so um, I have to say, we were stunned and surprised uh, at the success, you know, Publishers Weekly, it was third bestseller in the US. It beat Kamala Harris's book, it beat Harry and Megan. It beat the new Game of Thrones book. And the one we're most proud of is it beat the new Kardashian's book. Um, so it hit a mark. And we, we had all uh five of them in process before the first one came out. You know, there's a there's the, the teachers, the school leaders, the higher education, um, the parents, and then the assessment ones are about to come out. Try to say, here's a way to capture this and, br- and bring it um, and learn from COVID. And that's my message here today, Steve. I hope every teacher and school leader in your country is keeping a learning log about what is working well in the distance teaching so that when we come back, we can have a very lively discussion led by your program about What are the things we need to do to bring back better? Because there are some incredibly positive. After eight months here in Australia, the reports are coming in of the increases in many kids' learning as a consequence of COVID teaching. Um, Yes, there are some negatives. The kids who are most dependent on the teacher are the ones that are having the most negatives. And if you turn that on its head, we need to teach kids to have self-regulation, to have some more Oversight of how they go about them teaching themselves, and that's the most powerful learning. So that's where the books came from, and um, I'm delighted that they've had the success they've had. Um, provided we get that message, know the impact. Keep your learning log of what's working well to bring back better.
0: That's awesome because this is this is such a learning opportunity that you know you f- you worry that some people are not not they're trying to push those opportunities aside and say uh, just just get me beyond this, and instead. To take advantage of it and figure out you know what it is that we can learn and, and put to good use down the road. I, uh, yeah, if you if you go
1: back to your school at the end of this COVID teaching and you say oh for the safety and the well being of kids we need to go back to what it was because it's comfortable, you're doing the biggest damage you've ever done. I think this is the opportunity to have some of our best learning and go back to what I said earlier, led by school leaders, led by teachers. No one's mandated this we can make this difference.
0: Love it, I love it. Uh, John, we're, we're, we're getting close to, to, to wrapping up here. And uh, before we go, if someone wanted to connect further with you and or learn more about Visible Learning, where would you send them?
1: Um, we do have a, a website, um, www.visiblelearning.com. Um, last year, we also released MatterX, which is also on that site, which is all the data that underlies Visible Learning. Um, I wanted to put the data out there to save someone 30 years of collecting it because I'm much more interested. I'm hoping one day, I'm expecting one day someone to come along with a better interpretation than mine about all this data that we have on schools based on a third of a billion kids. So I put the data out there. Uh, so visible you can find lots of stuff.
0: Excellent. Excellent. And I'll make sure that's in the show notes. And, and I have two last questions I'd like to ask you that, uh, have nothing to do with that. <laughs> so, and it goes like this. The first one is uh, when life gets tough and you start getting so much stuff thrown at you that you may want to quit, how do you keep going?
1: <laughs> well, firstly, uh, someone said criticism, success is often measured by the number of arrows in your back. Uh, and in academia, you could spend your whole life and no one could care. The fact that people are prepared to critique and read and comment on my work is kind of quite exciting and quite a sense of um, pride that they do that. Um, but I have been a, a researcher now for 40, 50 years. I've recently retired from my university job. Uh, we set up a, a, a family foundation to give back. Um, and you can imagine I'm quite obsessed um, with family. Uh, now it's um, I've had three boys who are now young men. I've got three granddaughters and, um, and hopefully more on the way. I'm obsessed with um, crosswords. Um, I'm an avid reader. Uh, but most of all, Steve, I like to reach out and talk to people who want to talk, who want to critique. Yeah. People like yourself. Um, I, I just think this is so wonderful that I've had a life where I can indulge in my passion. It's been wonderful.
0: That's awesome. That is really cool. And I greatly appreciate you wanting to talk. So this, I, I thank you for that. The, uh, it's, it's so cool. Uh, John, Last question goes like this: Do you have a teacher in your past who made a difference in your life? If so, who was it, and what would you say if given the chance to say thank you?
1: Steve, on that, about three or four years ago, we had the chance to get some data came in our lap uh, of about six or seven hundred adults that were asked this question, and it was interesting when we analyzed um, the reasons why they chose that teacher. There were two things: either that teacher turned you on to their passion and or that teacher saw something in you, you didn't see in yourself. And so for me, the teacher I've always chosen has always been Mr. Tomlinson. He was my maths teacher in my last year at high school. And the days I went through school and you had to do maths whether you liked it or not right through to the end and I probably would have given up. I was okay at it, but I wasn't brilliant. And he walked into the class on day one, he gave us the end of the year assessment and we all got zero. And he said, my job is to make every one of you succeed on this end of the year assessment. And he was, he was a very uh, rigid teacher, quite disciplinarian in many ways. But he never let up. He, he made every one of us. And he saw something in me I didn't see in myself. I could do math. And I've gone to get a PhD in statistics because of Mr. Thompson. He was passionate about his subject. And he was fair. He did it to every kid in the class, not just me or one or two of them. He did it to every kid. And I, I look back on him with, he opened doors for me. I never, ever understood and I hope,
0: Steve, that um, who's your teacher, by the way? Oh, it's. Uh, I was wondering if you might turn that question back on me. Uh, my 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 teacher is a uh, senior English teacher. Her name was uh, E.J. Johnson, Mrs. Emma Jo Johnson, and uh, she was uh, she was tough, <laughs> but she oh. knew she knew you as a kid. It it was yeah. the craziest thing. She and. Uh, I mean, she figured out, she spent, she individualized her attention to people and, uh, but she made me excited about, I mean, she made me start thinking about writing and working in the writing world. not so much working as a writer that's not my point my point is is that you know before I had her I'm just kind of going through the motions kind of like what you talked about I'm figuring out the games that teachers play and I if you'll let me play that game then I'm just going to give you what I can give you to get through the game and instead she put a big brick wall in front of that and she figured me out fast and the coolest story that I have about her is that uh is that th- thing right there? Which is that she she understood her kids, and as she figured you out, <laughs> then she it was like a t- personal challenge to her to figure out how to get you interested.
1: So she saw something in you you probably did not in yourself. Steve, have you contacted Miss Johnson?
0: Unfortunately, she passed away a long time ago, oh and God. I wish I had before. I wish I wish the thought had come to me before um, before that had all happened. So, but I have. Yeah, I've
1: contacted I've contacted Mister Tomlinson. Yeah, you know, every. Two or three years, we have a correspondence. He always insists on handwriting uh, for all kinds of reasons. As I've reached out to him over the years, and I I implore every one of you that's listening here today to think back to that teacher and write to them. Like You think as a teacher yourself when you get that letter. um, It's kind of reinforcing to know that we do have positive impacts. So contact your best teacher. Tell them what that experience was like.
0: I love that, I love that, and I echo the same because I wish I had and i 've been able to take advantage of it and and reach out to a, a college professor that I had, and it was cool to get a card back from that person so Nice. The, uh, uh, John, thank you so much for talking with me today. From all your research articles and books on visible learning, student learning, and the, the leading of schools, you're an inspiration, and I mean that from my heart. I, th- thanks for sharing about the books, 10 Mind Frames for Leaders, The Visible Learning Approach to School Success, The Distance Learning Playbook for School Leaders, Leading for Engagement and Impact in Any Setting, and The Distance Learning Playbook Grades, K-12, through Teaching for Engagement and Impact in Any Setting. These are awesome tools for classroom teachers and school leaders. You know, all educators should read them and take them to heart. And I thank you. I wish you the best in all that you do.
1: Thank you very much, David. It's a pleasure talking to you and your listeners.
0: Teaching Learning Leading K-12 is excited to be a member of Voice Ed Radio. Voice Ed Radio, your voice is right here. Teaching Learning Leading K-12 is a proud member of the Education Podcast Network. Podcasts for educators, podcasts by educators. (laughs)